Hello and welcome to the Chair's Corner from the Department of Medicine at the University of North Carolina. We are conducting a series of podcasts that explore topics related to autoimmune disease. Uh, these podcasts are aimed at helping patients and their loved ones understand and manage their conditions. And today, we're going to be talking about something called the microbiome and how it affects disease, autoimmunity in general, and inflammatory bowel disease in particular. And today, we welcome Dr. Balfour Sarter, who is the Midget Distinguished Professor of Medicine, Microbiology, and Immunology, and is in our Division of Gastroenterology. He co-directs the UNC Multidisciplinary Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center and is a world's expert on inflammatory bowel disease and the microbiome. Welcome, Dr. Sarter. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. So, Balfour, what on earth is that term microbiome? What well, does that mean? It's a confusing term, Ron, but the microbiome is the huge number of bacteria, viruses, and fungi that inhabit our bodies, primarily in the gut, but also in the mouth, the skin, at any mucosal surface. These are metabolically active products that eat what we eat. They spew out chemicals that influence our body's uh, function as well, and particularly the immune function. So it's a funny concept, but one that when one thinks about it is evident. Well, you've got to remember that we evolved. Bacteria were here before we were, so we evolved to live with these uh, bacteria and viruses. And most of the time, they're very much important in our day-to-day activity. Yeah. In fact, uh, you're colonized at birth, particularly with vaginal delivery, and uh, they influence how the gut works in particular. They help digest our foods, and they produce very important products such as butyrate and short-chain fatty acids that are important both nutritionally as well as feeding our gut cells, for example. If one gets rid of all those bacteria and viruses and other living tiny organisms uh, with an antibiotic, for example, what happens? Well, many things can happen. And number one, diarrhea is very common. Yeast infections can develop after broad-spectrum antibiotics because these, bac- these normal bacteria prevent overgrowth of pathogenic organisms. Bad bacteria. Yeah, the bad bacteria. And the best example of bad bacteria is something called Clostridium difficile, which is or an infection. C. diff. C. diff, probably most people know. It's, it's a toxin-producing bacteria whose spores are present in our gut all the time, but they, they don't hatch because the huge number of normal bacteria prevent them from taking hold. But if those normal bacteria are removed, then there's a niche, an ecologic niche, that can be filled by these pathogenic bacteria. So every time a physician prescribes an antibiotic, what you're saying is that that's going to alter the microbiome. It, it definitely will, and so physicians and patients need to think carefully, is an antibiotic really indicated? Many antibiotics are prescribed kind of by reflex when you have a virus, a cold. They're not going to help that. So I think it's quite appropriate to, to question your physician. Is a 
antibiotic necessary and try to use the most specific antibiotic so uh, it's selected for the, for the detrimental bad bacteria but rather than the good bacteria. If one wants to try to uh, improve one's microbiome, if that's even possible, and we have to talk about if that's even possible, how can a patient alter one their microbiome? Well, it's a great question, uh, and it's one that doesn't have an easy answer. Basically, your microbiome is pretty well set by the time weaning occurs. So between age nine and age two in humans, the microbiome evolves from a relatively simple group of bacteria and fungi to a very complex group. That's pretty well set at by age two. Now, you can alter, uh, you can tweak the system as far as the composition by dietary products, different eating different foods, but you can change in a major way the metabolic function of these bacteria. So, uh, for example, high-fiber diets will increase the number of beneficial bacteria and particularly cause them to produce butyrate and other short-chain fatty acids that are very helpful for both the uh, lining of the gut, main metabolic fuel, as well as programming protective immune responses. On the other hand, bad diets can have the uh, opposite effect. There are in many foods uh, advertised on TV and in health food stores bacteria that have been purposely introduced into yogurt or milk or in tablet or liquid form. Does any of that actually work to alter the microbiome? Well, another really important question because advertisements for food products don't require FDA approval. And so there are many claims that really aren't substantiated. Probiotics are a very popular uh, area. So if you go to any drugstore, you'll see shelves of probiotics. The problem with the traditional probiotics are they aren't the bacteria that normally live in the gut. So yes, they will colonize the gut. If you eat yogurt that is non-pasteurized yogurt, you've got to remember that some yogurt is pasteurized and has heat killed, uh, kills the bacteria. But the probiotics that are typically found, many of the lactobacilli species, only transiently colonize the gut. As long as you're taking the probiotic, they're there and they're functioning, but as soon as you stop, they're gone. So no staying power. What's the effect of the microbiome uh, in health and disease on influencing the immune system? Well, the immune system is educated in a major way by the bacteria in particular, but to a lesser extent, the, the fungi. The way it works is that certain bacteria stimulate protective immune responses, and they do it in several ways. And I'll try to make this uh, palatable for the, for the audience. But one way is they have cell wall components that stimulate so-called hardwired responses that uh, stimulate the same response in almost any cell. They also produce metabolic products. I mentioned butyrate earlier that stimulates the uh, evolution of protective immune cells, so-called Tregs, regulatory T cells, that 
prevent inflammation. And then they also have antigens that are very specialized proteins that are recognized by the T cells. And some T cells have beneficial activities, Tregs, for example. Others induce inflammation. And those are the detrimental T cells, the ones that produce interferon gamma IL-17. And uh, those are the ones that we try to target to treat IBD and other immune-mediated diseases. Your own research has shown a substantial interaction between the microbiome and inflammatory bowel disease. Can you uh, help our audience understand the importance of that work, which is really groundbreaking? Well, you're very kind. I've, I've been working on this area since I began doing research here at UNC and 1979. In a nutshell, we've shown over the years that there's a balance of beneficial and aggressive bacteria in our normal gut. These aren't the, the, the infections that we think about, but these are the normal gut. So there's a balance of good and bad bacteria. We've demonstrated in genetically susceptible mice and rats that without bacteria, there is no chronic inflammation. So if you add bacteria to a genetically susceptible mouse or rat, they develop colitis. But in the absence of bacteria, they don't. We've very importantly, I think, demonstrated that, that some bacteria are good and some bacteria are bad. Some bacteria can actually help the disease. Absolutely. And some bacteria can, can actually cause the disease. Yes, in our experimental colitis models. And I think that that concept is uh, rolling over now into human IBD. So the uh, importance of this is that you then could consider how to manipulate one's microbiota. So if you're a patient with a newly diagnosed either inflammatory bowel disease or another autoimmune disease, having just listened to what you've said, you'd be saying to yourself, okay, how can I as a patient improve my chances of uh, perhaps feeling better, doing better by uh, stacking the deck on my side and uh, figuring out how to get as many good bacteria in me as possible. You've talked to, talked a little bit about the, the uh, possibility of altering uh, the microbiota with food. Yes. Any other recommendations for that person? Well, first of all, that, that, that was a, a multi-layered question. So first of all, Current therapy in IBD in particular, and in most immune-mediated diseases, is targeting the detrimental, the aggressive immune response. So corticosteroids, prednisone, biologic therapies, Remicade, Humira, uh, for example, are designed to block the immune response. It is still speculative that altering the microbiota will have a beneficial effect in humans. We clearly have shown that in mice. My research at the present time is trying to translate that to humans. In theory, and I want to stress this isn't ready for prime time, you don't want to stop your regular medications, one could alter the microbiome, one by diet, in particular in, in the gut, avoiding refined sugars, high fructose corn syrup, uh, which seem to particularly stimulate growth of bad bacteria, 
increase the amount of fiber. But beyond that, antibiotics can alter the microbiome short-term, not long-term. Probiotics we've talked about. I think we need to get better probiotics. The ones currently in use in the drugstore, I said, don't have staying power. We need to we need to harness those protective, beneficial bacteria already in our guts. Fecal transplant is all the rage now. That, again, is still speculative, except in the setting of C. diff, recurrent C. diff infection. Okay. So fecal transplant. What on earth are you talking about? Well, it sounds outlandish. But, in fact, it's, it's become quite trendy uh, among certain circles. Basically, a fecal transplant is taking feces from a normal, healthy patient and putting them either by enema form or by a tube going down uh, the nose into the stomach, normal fecal uh, material, which has a normal set of bacteria, viruses, and fungi, with the idea of restoring one's balance more toward normal. It, it's, uh, it's used clinically with great efficacy. You know, it's probably the best way of getting people who have recurrent C. diff infections back to normal. But it's, it's been remarkable, actually. Yeah, it, 93% in, you know, in a New England Journal study, uh, people responded to uh, up to two fecal transplants, most with one, 85% with, with one transplant. But in autoimmune diseases and IBD, it's still speculative. It's still experimental. There are YouTubes, however, of people uh, showing how to do a fecal transplant at home with your own blender and enema bag, etc. There are two groups of people, those that think it's great and those that think it's pretty yucky. There is a risk associated with it because you are now transferring from another individual potentially viruses that you don't want. Absolutely. Uh, Not only viruses, but bacteria and fungi as well. But you could transfer... Uh, a number of viruses Ab- abs- that you that that are life-threatening. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why it's not ready for prime time. And I and I think this isn't the long-term best approach uh, because under medical supervision, there's a very deep screening process to exclude all the pathogens that that we know about. The trouble is there there are many viruses we don't know about. But you're excluding hepatitis B and hepatitis C and HIV, but there are lots of viruses and pathogens who we can't name that are going to be in fecal transplants also. Absolutely. And not only that, that there's been some evidence that at least in mice that fecal transplant from an obese donor can transfer obesity, for example to the recipient. So I believe the wave of the future is going to be in defined cocktails of bacteria that are grown in the test tube, and therefore you know that there's no, that there's no contamination. That they're safe. And, and that they're safe. Right. And also that you can match the uh, transplant with the defects, the abnormalities in the, in the recipient. You have used the word butyrate on several occasions here. What is butyrate? How can I get it, and what should I know about it? Butyrate is a bacterial product that is uh, the consequence of metabolism of non-absorbed carbohydrates, particularly fiber in the diet, and that's why eating fiber is is beneficial. 
Uh, butyrate has many functions in our intestines. Number one, it feeds the colon uh, epithelial lining cells, the lining cells of the colon. Helps restore their uh, activity, helps heal an inflamed area. Secondly, it has very important immune functions. It decreases the activity of the um, aggressive T cells and decreases the pro-inflammatory mediators. So we all want some butyrate running around. Well, we all do. And and then it also increases those regulatory T cells that I mentioned. The problem is taking butyrate is very difficult because it is uh, rapidly metabolized outside of the body. So the best way of doing it is to produce it in your body. So have beneficial bacteria, feed them a high-fiber diet, and voila, you get butyrate in the right location. What's a high-fiber diet that you would recommend? Well, the bacteria tend to preferentially use bran products, uh, whole wheat bread, bran cereals, rather than than vegetables and cellulose, which is lettuce, for example. If you wanted to feed your bacteria and stimulate good responses, probably a high-fiber diet with bran, cereals, muffins, oatmeal, predominant, rather than uh, more, more of a salad-based. If you project out into the future and you're going to think about how one would want to treat inflammatory bowel disease, in particular autoimmune disease perhaps in general, let's move forward 10, 15, 20 years, and you're going to do it from a microbiome-changing approach. Uh, your thought is then to, to harvest very particular bacteria. How would you pick those bacteria? How would you pick those bugs? Well, in the animal models, we're picking them by measuring beneficial immune responses. So we have mice that are genetically engineered to have their cells light up with a green fluorescent protein when they are producing beneficial substances like IL-10. So we can put in different cocktails of bacteria and look at, at, at uh, protective immune functions. The reason this is important is I mentioned earlier, I think we need to find bacteria that normally grow in the gut and harness their protective activities and try to create cocktails of beneficial bacteria. And that's where I would love to see the field go over the next 5, 10, 20 years. We, we currently emphasize basically bashing the immune response. We try to knock the immune response down. It's very effective in blocking inflammation, but the trouble is a side effect is inducing, uh, open the door for infections and maybe even tumors. So what I would love to do is to augment that by using bacteria and bacterial products to to stimulate protective immune responses, to stimulate healing of the lining of the gut, and even alter the profile of uh, the, the bacteria where the protective bacteria are predominant and the detrimental bacteria are limited. I think if you do that, you could, in a very non-toxic approach and hopefully cheap approach, combination of good, you know, carefully thought out probiotics, carefully thought out 
diets that are palatable and try to minimize the use of immunosuppressive drugs over the long haul. It might also be useful to think about prevention of disease in the first place. If one can imagine in a genetically susceptible individual, you'd like to modulate the microbiome before the disease occurs. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think that's the, the ultimate frontier is prevention. We know that many of these uh, immune-mediated diseases, which is my preferred term over autoimmune, happen in families. We know that there are uh, genes that are associated, 200 genes associated with Crohn's disease. And it would be wonderful if at age two, when one is uh, pretty much has the microbiota you're going to have for life, to go in and measure the levels. Is it normal or abnormal? If it's abnormal, correct it early in life where it's probably more uh, amenable to, to correction and hopefully prevent onset of disease rather than waiting for symptoms to happen and then try to catch up and treat. You have brought up the important concept that uh, the microbiome of an individual really is established by age two, and then uh, tweaking occurs thereafter. And then nicely pointed out that at the age of two, uh, perhaps one could think about preventative strategies. One of the hypotheses, one of the thoughts of what may cause uh, autoimmune processes is that uh, uh, kids are in sterile environments and are not exposed to other Uh, bugs in the soil. It's called the hygiene hypothesis. We become so fastidious about wiping out every germ in our environment that we've created an environment that's actually potentially detrimental to the long-term health of our children. Any credibility from a microbiome expert to that hypothesis? I think there's quite a bit of evidence that epidemiologically that many of these immune-mediated diseases preferentially occur in Western Europe, North America, that are industrialized and tend to have a very clean environment. In fact, many uh, studies have shown that cities, urban areas, have a higher instance of these disorders than rural. Uh, If you have pets in the house, it's protective. If you're the second child in a family, it's protected. I think there's a lot of epidemiologic evidence. I like the idea. It's still a hypothesis. It's not proven. But I like the idea because, as mentioned, the normal gut bacteria are critically important in shaping one's immune system. And if there is delayed exposure to these uh, normal gut complex gut bacteria that live in dirt, that live in less uh, pristine environments, then the education is more normal than uh, delayed. There's some evidence in mice that I think is quite well uh, done that there's a window of opportunity that if you don't educate the immune system during a critically important time, maybe pre-weaning or certainly during the weaning process, you've lost the opportunity to develop protective immune responses. So I think there are huge opportunities to explore this in man and capitalize on that, again, in the prevention concept. 
So we should all have our children and grandchildren go roll out in the dirt. I, I'm a strong believer in eating dirt. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Sarter, and thanks to our listeners for tuning in. If you enjoy this series, you can subscribe to the Chairs Corner on iTunes or like the UNC Department of Medicine on Facebook. Thanks for listening. <laughs>